Well, as we wind up Christmas, there was a story of a four-year-old boy from Nashville who went with his grandfather into the woods to select a Christmas tree. They trampled all over, but the boy, he couldn't find the Christmas tree that he wanted, one that suited him. Finally, the sun was setting, the night was getting to set in, it was getting dark, it was getting cold, and the grandfather said, we would have to quit looking pretty soon. He said, we'll have to take the very next tree that we see. The boy looked up and very sadly he said, even if it doesn't have any lights either. <laughs> boy, wouldn't that be nice to go out in the woods and find a tree all with lights and everything else on it. See, for the little boy, he had gotten his mind to look for a certain thing and he couldn't find it. And so therefore he rejected everything because he couldn't find what he looked for. He may have found many a tree that was good, but it didn't have lights on. And he walked away. And they kept looking and kept looking and kept looking until finally they had to settle for whatever came up next. We begin a new series here. It happens to be the new year and we're beginning a new series. It didn't uh, work out that way other than it just happens to be that way. And as I was uh, meditating on some things to get into for this, this particular one, how many have ever been called stubborn? We've been called stubborn, and you know, sometimes I hear people say things about uh, either me or other people, or, and they say, boy, you're stubborn. And you know, they mean it in a, in a bad way. In other words, you're not giving in to what I want you to do, so therefore you are stubborn. And so I began to meditate on this uh, for a while. You know, we were in that last series for so long, we covered a lot of different topics, but this kind of grows out of that series. And I put it here as a title for this. Steady or stubborn? Because for some people, they will interpret one who is steady as one who is stubborn. And some people might interpret one who is stubborn as one who is steady. Is it good or is it bad that you're not movable? It can be good, but it can be bad. There's a fine line in discerning the two. But a world of difference on one side or the other. Which side are we on? I put in your outline this. Am I keeping the truth or deception out? One who is stubborn is very likely to keep the truth out. One who is steady is able to involve himself in truth, new truth and new revelation while being resistant to deception. The opposition... Our enemy, he wants to deceive us. Doesn't he want to deceive? He wants to deceive me. His goal is to deceive me. He is called the deceiver for a reason. He goes about deceiving. He's a deceiver. He wants to deceive me. If he can't deceive me, he wants to pervert the word that's in me. If he can't deceive me and pervert the word that's in me, he wants to steal the word from me. Saw that in the parables. Ultimately, he wants to kill the life of God in me. He wants to deceive, pervert, steal, or ultimately kill the word, kill the life of God that is in me. Because the life of God that is in us is a problem for him. Now, the New Testament has a particular word for the life of God. Anybody know what it is? Zoe. <laughs> That's the word that it uses for the life of God. We should know that well. Overall, the enemy wants to neutralize me. To neutralize means to make ineffective. He wants to make us ineffective. He wants to take what word is in us and neutralize it. He doesn't care if we have word. He cares that it's not effective. So he's going to deceive you. He's going to pervert the word that you got. He's going to steal the word from you or somehow come up with a way to kill the life of God in you. Because there are many Christians who walk about this life and do not have the life of God in them. They go to church. They pray. They read their Bible. They know about God. They believe God. But they have no life in them. Not the God kind of life. God wants us to have His life in us. He wants His love to abound in us. But the enemy does not. Now look at some of the warnings that were given in the Word of God. Some by Jesus and some by the apostles. 
In Matthew 24, verse 3, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, speaking of the end times, what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. How do you take heed that no one deceives you? If we simply do not receive any new information, can anyone deceive us? <laughs> but you're neutralized. Revelation is to be ongoing. We are always to be learning more about our God. How many of you would say you know everything there is to know about God? No. So we are in the process of learning about God more. But in the process of learning about God more, we are going to come upon some information that is false. So the idea is we must build up a resistance to what is false and an openness to what is true. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. That tells us, folks, right there that there's a whole lot of Christians who are prone to deception. That means for all of our talk of stubbornness amongst people, we are not stubborn towards the right thing. That we are open to being deceived. In the three and a half years that Jesus spent with his disciples, how many times were his disciples led away? How many times did Jesus have to rebuke them about their unbelief? How many times did he have to rebuke them when they weren't getting the message that he was teaching? When he taught the first parable and they came to him asking about it, what did he say? If you don't understand this parable, how are you going to receive the rest of them? When they finally were starting to get some things to them, Jesus said, who, who am I? And Peter stood up and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to them, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And then the word of God tells us that he began to teach them differently. He began to teach them about his death, his resurrection that was to come. And after a while, Peter pulled him aside. And Peter said to him, you should be teaching like this. And what did Jesus do? He rebuked him. So Peter had been open to revelation, but then all of a sudden something came in there, wasn't it? And he didn't resist it. He pulled it in and he fell prey to that deception. And Jesus said, oh, that's okay. You gave it a good shot, Peter. No, he said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. If we are open to the revelations that come from the Holy Spirit, we are mindful of the things of God. If we open ourselves up to the revelations that don't come from the Holy Spirit, we are mindful of the things of men. Which one will give you the life of God? So it's always a work to stay on the side of the life of God. Yeah, but Christianity shouldn't be this hard of work. Folks, we have an enemy. The enemy wants to neutralize you. The enemy wants to pervert you. He wants to take the word and cause it to be ineffective. And then when you use the word, out of your mouth come responses like, well, God just doesn't like me. It didn't work. Well, it works for everybody else but me. We've gone over these things before and we were in a previous series. Remember all that? Look at another scripture. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. How can anyone deceive you with empty words? Because you think they have substance. Why do you think that empty words have substance? <laughs> because we don't know enough to recognize their hollowness. <coughs> if we knew enough, how many of you, you, know, you there's, how many of you have, you have fields of expertise? I don't mean that you're the pro most proficient person in that field, but how many of you have areas in life that you're pretty good at? I mean, it can be anything from cooking to cleaning to a hobby to a car to maintenance on a house, to particular uh, trades. But we all have something that we are really good at and that we pursue that, we find knowledge in it. And if we get someone who says something to us in our field of expertise and they say, oh, you can't do it that way. And because of our knowledge we have, we know that that is empty words. What do you mean you can't do that? I do that all the time. I'm not going to be deceived. 
But if someone tells me something in an area I'm not all that educated in, I may be swayed. So if you're the enemy, what area are you going to come after? An area where you are proficient? Or an area where you are not? Jesus' words when he was alive, most of the time when he was talking about being deceived, he was talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and he was talking about end times. We ought to take note of the areas that Jesus said, be careful not to be deceived in. The reason he gave such a warning about end times is probably for the same reason we have that problem today. Many churches don't teach on end times. We were out at the uh, RMAI function, the uh, retreat that we had uh, sometime a a few months ago. Uh, Brother Doug Jones was there. He was ministering. Boy, I enjoy Brother Doug. He's just he's just fun. And he was uh, he said something in one of the one of the uh, meetings we had about how much the Rhema group does not teach on end times. Hit me like a ton of bricks. I said, you're kidding me. I went up to him privately afterwards. I says, really? You mean there are people in our group who don't teach on end times? He says, oh, no, well, most of them don't. I said, that's shocking. I said, I love to teach on end times. I teach on every time, end times every week, except the you know, folks we had, they get bored of it after a while because they all know this stuff. <laughs> We've taught on every passage of end times three times since the time I've been here. And then other than that, we've had some classes where we run over the, the teachings of it, going over the... the, the um, and there's five different areas in the, in the Word of God we've covered. We've covered Jesus' teachings. We've covered Paul's teachings. We've covered Daniel. We've covered the book of Revelation. We've covered things in the epistles. It's important that you know. Because if you don't know, you can be... Deceived. But as soon as you know, you can't be deceived. Because I know. No, that's going to happen. <laughs> I know that's coming. Oh, I'm not going to fall for that one. Because I know. Why does a magic trick amaze us? Because we don't know how it's done. As soon as we know how it's done, what happens? Oh, that's no fun anymore. I've seen them cut people in half. It's no big deal. (laughs) But the first time we saw somebody get cut in half, wow, that's amazing. I mean, I saw them get into the box. I saw That's their feet. They're wiggling their feet. That's their head. And we're amazed. Then we find out how it gets done. Ah, oh, it's no big deal. No big deal. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the what? The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Ignorance, folks, will hurt you. If you become hard to the right teaching, you can incur wrath. You need to not be hard to the right teaching. Colossians chapter 2 verse 4. Now this I say lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. So we had empty words. Now we have persuasive words. Now you know what persuasive words are. How many of you have ever had somebody in your life who comes in and you know when they're not around you can see right through them. But every time they're around they begin to talk up a storm and after they talk for a while you begin to believe something that they're saying and then you get burned again and you say why did I believe what that person said? I know that they don't do anything but lie persuasive words they sound good second thessalonians 2 verse 3 let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed and the son of perdition i love that verse because that that verse by itself is able to debunk every well not every but that you know the the teaching that went on about post-tribulation the post-tribulation rapture i bought into that for a while in fact i was doggone good at it too I went to a Baptist college and convinced all of them they were wrong. They were afraid to argue with me about it because I knew I knew it better than they did. And I was wrong. <laughs> and I convinced people who had the right truth on the wrong stuff because I was convinced of it. Then somebody set me free on this thing. You read that verse in, that, in the way it's put in your Bible, you miss most of what it said. And then this wrong doctrine came out, you know, about, uh, well, there's going to be a a great falling away. The church is just going to fall away before the rapture comes. That's not what it said at all. What it said was, if you get into the Greek, we don't have time to do it now. We've done it in the past. The stuff's up there on the internet. If you want to go up there and get it, if you can't find it, let me know. I'll help you out. What it says is this. That day, the rapture, or that day, the judgment day, the day when Jesus Christ comes to judge the earth, that day cannot come until the rapture comes first. That's what Paul is saying in that verse. You say it doesn't look like that. That's because you didn't look close enough. 
<laughs> I got into the Greek. I've got other people into the Greek. And if you get into the Greek, what it says, it's real clear. What the Thessalonians were wrestling with, but people came over to him and says, this really tough stuff you're going through, this really hard time, you are in the tribulation. And they wrote back to Paul and they said, we are in the tribulation? I didn't think we were going to go through the tribulation. And they were greatly perplexed. And they wrote Paul a letter. And Paul wrote them back and said to them, don't let anyone deceive you. You cannot be here for the day, for that day, for that day of judgment, that day when Christ comes as the Messiah. You cannot be here that day. The great pulling away, the great catching away must come first. When we are all caught away and pulled up. If you get into the Greek, it's the exact same, same wording is in there. But we're not here to talk about that right now. We're here to talk about other stuff. So I can just, that stuff is fun. I just love this stuff. First John 2, verse 26. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. One more thing on end times. You know why it's important to learn end times? Most Christians don't learn end times. You know why? I won't be here. <laughs> right? Why should I learn it? I'm not going to be here. Of course you're not. How many of you all know people that are resistant to getting born again? Sure. All right. Learn the end times and tell them so when they're here, they'll get saved. That's why you do it. You learn end times to teach people that are going to still be here when you're gone. That's why it's important to know. Plus, as you're getting closer to it, you won't be deceived. These things I have written, you say, I can't be deceived. Well, that's part of the problem. You can be deceived. Unless you pull in the knowledge of the Word of God. The knowledge of the Word of God will keep you from being deceived. It's real clear. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. Do you know that there are people out there who try to deceive you? On purpose, knowing that what they are saying to you is not true. But want to pull you into the deception to neutralize you. Do you know that there are people out there? You ought to. Turn on your TV. They're on every night, 3, 6, and 10. News people purposely try to deceive you. Especially if you do any other digging into the stories and find out that what they told you was not actually what happened. But they tried to shape your opinion by not reporting the news accurately. They report it the way they want to because they want you deceived. The same way in the church, there are people who want you to be deceived. For whatever reason. And he's warning you about this right now. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. He wants them exposed. Because if you know someone is trying to deceive you, you wouldn't go into it, right? How about all those people that have the financial schemes? And they pull people into the financial schemes. They get your money. How do they get your money? You know that people are out there trying to do it. How do they get your money? They deceive you. They know that what they're selling you isn't true. But they just want to get you to buy it. Buy into it. Give us some money. And we're good. First John chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. So who's it up to? Get this down, folks. If anyone deceives you, it is your fault. If anyone deceives you, it is your fault. Stop blaming other people. Stop blaming other situations. It's your fault. You did not do what you could, could have done to prevent being deceived. But thank God that the Word of God helps us out with this. Now, if the enemy cannot neutralize you in this way, he's going to try another tactic. We can become so careful about not being deceived that we become stubborn and unteachable. We can become so careful at not being deceived that we become stubborn and unteachable. If the devil can't get in with deception, then he will try and harden you up so that you will receive nothing. Because that also will neutralize you. Mark chapter 3. This is the verse where we really wanted to be out here today. That's all just introduction. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. And he entered the synagogue again, and, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. They don't care that the man got healed. They care that he got healed on a Sabbath. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. I love the Greek on this. The Greek says, be arising into the midst. <laughs> in other words, there's something going on here. I want you to stand up and come in the middle of this. Now, if you're the man with the withered hand, 
you could probably feel what's going on. You probably know the tension that's between Jesus and them about the healing on the Sabbath. And you're there and Jesus calls you, you with the withered hand. If he's focusing on the withered hand, what's he focusing on? We're going to get you healed. Step forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. They didn't answer him. He's just, let's just clarify this. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? Which one's lawful? Well, I mean, if they say to do good, then what's he going to say? Let's do some good here. Let's heal this man. If they say to do evil, what's the people going to say? What? Do evil on the Sabbath? So they didn't like that one. To save life or to kill? On the Sabbath, is it, is it better? Is it lawful to save a life or to kill someone? I mean, that's hard to answer that. I think uh, even on Monday, it still is better to save a life than it is to kill, right? But he's talking about the Sabbath because that's what they're focusing on. Well, they kept silent. And he looked, when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by their hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Now the Pharisees and the Herodians don't like each other. But they got together on this one because they found a common enemy. They found a common enemy. You know, it's kind of like in Star Trek when the uh, Federation teamed up with the Romulans to go against the Borg. All you Trekkies know what I mean. If you're not a Trekkie, you have no idea what I just said. No. That's all right. But you see, when you have a common enemy, you can put, put aside all of your differences in order to unite and get the one enemy until that enemy is out of your way. And so they put aside all their other differences. Now, this is what's really interesting about this. Their problem with Jesus is a doctrinal one. They felt that the law did not allow them to do healing on the Sabbath day. It was a doctrinal issue. That's all it was. They didn't deny that God would heal. They just said not on the Sabbath. In fact, in one passage, they actually said, look, bring them on the, on the other days. There are six days in the week. Bring them on the other days, not this one. They were getting upset at that. The whole thing was, it was just a doctrinal thing about the Sabbath. Now, the reason I bring that up is this. Why did the Pharisees not like the Herodians? Is it personalities? It was doctrine. They didn't agree on doctrine. They had differences on how they saw things. So what they did was, because of our difference on doctrine with Jesus, we will put aside our differences on doctrine with each other. So how important is this doctrine? They can put aside the other doctrines and work with people, but they can't put aside the doctrine and work with Jesus. Doesn't that strike you as odd? Now, Jesus said on this, is it lawful on the Sabbath, in verse 4, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Look at verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Rodians against him how they might destroy him. So they went out on the Sabbath and plotted how to murder someone because they didn't like that he healed people on the Sabbath. Now, does that make sense to you? But what happened was their hearts had gotten so hard that even when, with all this light around them, they couldn't, they couldn't see through it. They would rather unite on other doctrinal issues with the Herodians than unite with Jesus on this one simple issue. The day of the healing. And then go off and plan on a Sabbath day how to kill somebody. Now those, those folks are hard, aren't they? And we can get just as hard. Are they stubborn? They're not going to move off of their position. They're stubborn. Now I want to read this passage to you in the Weiss translation. And he again entered a synagogue and there was there in that place a man whose one hand had withered and they kept on spying upon him closely whether he would on the Sabbath heal him in order that they might bring a formal accusation against him before a tribunal. 
And he says to the man having the withered hand, be arising in the midst of everyone around you. I like the way he puts that. He, he just, he captures that right there. Be arising in the midst of everybody around you. And he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept on being quiet and having looked around about them with a righteous indignation, being grieved at the callousness of their hearts. He says to the man, stretch out your hand at once. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored to its former state. And having gone out, the Pharisees at once with the Herodians were giving counsel against him in order that they might destroy him. He says, and we put it this way, being grieved at the callousness of their hearts. The callousness of their hearts. How many have ever come upon someone who works outside? What happens to their hands? Become callous. They become hard. They're not as sensitive as they were before. They can grab hold of something that's cold and it doesn't affect them as much. Why? Because they've done it over and over and over and their hands have developed calluses so that they don't get wore out as much. The skin hardens, becomes less sensitive. And that's what it's using here to describe this. They have hearts that have grown callous. How do we have hearts that are grown callous? Now, remember last week in the little mini-series we were doing, we talked about being doers of the work of the word, not merely hearers, but if we are doers of the word that we hear, that we are like the man who built his house on a firm foundation, a rock, and not like the man who built his house on the sand, so that when the storms come, and the storms will come, on both the man who built the house on the sand and the man who built the house on the rock, the one that built the house on the rock, that house will stand. Because he did what he heard. When you hear and don't do it, you are developing a callousness to what you heard. And you are not as sensitive to responding to it. You become hardened, become stiff, and not listening to that as much. So when the Holy Spirit comes to you and reminds you of the word that you studied, He reminds you of the word. And that word begins to come up on the inside of you. And you resist. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm developing a callousness to the Holy Spirit. And then when the situation comes up again and the word of God comes up on the inside of me, you know the word of God says not to do that. I develop a callousness there. Now, instead of just talking in terms like this, let's pick on some situations. How many have ever given in to worry? We know that the Word of God says don't worry. And the thought comes to us about a situation in our life and we begin to worry. Well, the Holy Spirit quickens us on the inside and He says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And what do we do? We can either listen and do it and develop a softness to the voice of God, or not do it, and develop a hardness, a callousness to the voice of God, and we go on and we worry anyway. And then a situation comes up again, and I'm tempted to worry. And the Holy Spirit may come up to me again, and said, be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God. And what do I do? I think on it anyway, and I worry about it, and I worry about it, and I develop a callousness to the Holy Spirit. And then we get this idea, because somebody came up with it and taught us somewhere, well, the Holy Spirit just goes through those times when He doesn't talk to you. (laughs) No, you stop listening to Him. You can't hear Him. Because you become callous to it. You're developing a hardness to hear the things of God. Do you think that the Holy Spirit was talking to the Pharisees? This is the Messiah! Why are you plotting to kill him? He is healing people. What do they do? They develop a callousness to it. They're not listening. Even to the point that they can say, we are standing for this doctrine, but we'll let all the other ones go. How come this one is so much more important than all these other ones? The Word of God comes right out and says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt do no murder. But it doesn't come out and says, thou shalt not heal on the Sabbath. That's one that you've injected in because you liked it. 
So they expected Jesus to heal the man. But they had become so calloused that they preferred, now get this one, they had become so calloused that they preferred their doctrine over helping people. Hard-hearted people, calloused people, stubborn people prefer their doctrine over helping people. The Word of God, when Jesus was teaching them the Word of God, and he, they came to Him and said, What is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. This is the greatest commandment, and the second is like to it. And the second one was, Thou shalt do no murder. No. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second one. He said, if you do these two, you'll find out you're keeping all of them. But if you hold doctrine out over helping people, you can't abide by one of those, can you? You really can't abide by either. And then the whole thing begins to tumble down. He said, on these two commandments, all the law hinges. All of it. They had become so calloused, they preferred their doctrine over helping people. Now, don't answer this question out loud. What is more important, doctrine or people? Don't answer that question out loud. If you say doctrine, will you not act like the Pharisees? All right, so it can't be doctrine, right? <laughs> All right, if it's not doctrine, it must be people. If you say people, will you not be easily moved off of your principles? If people are more important than doctrine, then if a person is in need of something and it goes against the Word of God for me to do it, what am I going to do? You can't do either one. Folks, you can't, there is no, no answer to this question. It is not a matter of what's more important, doctrine or people. Neither. Because as soon as one becomes more important than the other, you have lost balance. The thing of it all is, folks, is the doctrine of God loves people. The doctrine of God puts serving people first. Because that's how Jesus taught us to become the greatest. How shall we become the greatest in the kingdom? Become the servant of all. The doctrine of God serves people. But if we ever put one over the other, we are out of balance and the result will be we will become hard to something. The balance is there that we keep doctrine. The doctrine that comes from the Word of God, not doctrine that comes from people. The doctrine that comes from the Word of God on the same level as people. Neither people nor doctrine gets elevated over the other. The problem with the Pharisees was doctrine got elevated over people. But there are some other groups that people became elevated over doctrine. You want a case for that? Go over the book of 1 Corinthians. The carnality of the people. Paul had to address them about it. He says, you even have one in there who's doing this, that. They shouldn't be doing those kind of things and being in a church. Why? Because they elevated the people over the doctrine. They had people who were coming in. They were doing whatever they wanted to, sharing whatever they wanted to. It was just disorder, no, no order at all. And Paul said, you need to get a control on that. And he gave them some doctrine to help them out. Doctrine and people. Don't let one get over the other one. The doctrine of God will always serve people. Always. So if we ever have a doctrine that we hold to that is not serving people, guess what? It's not a doctrine of God. The Pharisees should have known this is not a doctrine of God that people should not be healed on the Sabbath. But because they elevated that doctrine over the people, they got into all kinds of trouble. And pretty soon, the balance got shifted more and more. And now they're out there planning murders on a Sabbath day. So if you say people, you will not be easily moved off. Will you not be easily moved off your principles? Here's the result. How many of you know a person who has, as soon as they say or do a certain thing, your attitude changes? Do you have people in your life that as soon as they say something, as soon as they do something, your attitude changes? You are fine all the way up until this person said this. And it just sets you off. Your whole attitude went down. Or this person did this. They did something. Right? 
How many of you ever lived with noisy neighbors? No. I mean, you can walk through, you can go through the boardwalk down in Ocean City, down in Wildwood, and hear all the noise and be fine. But as soon as you are sitting at home, put your feet up, and you hear a few thump thumps, what happens? Oh, man. Oh, we got upset. Oh, come on. I've, been, I've had noisy neighbors. You know, there's a particular hotel I had to stay at when I was uh, traveling for Kelsner's. And the one, every, every time I was in, these, I was always on the ground floor, and there was people above me. And they all had kids, because when you go down the shore, you're generally bringing kids. And they thump, 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 thump. Back and forth, back and forth, just noisy as all get out. And you know, I could be out there hearing noises all day long, but if I'm there laying down, being still, not all of a sudden you thump, 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 thump. What's that do? There's those people again. They're probably not even the same people, but you know. <laughs> you can get an attitude real quick. Or if somebody in your household, I mean, if they just say a certain thing, oh, there they go again. Right? It just sets you off. Oh, there they go again. I mean, anybody else could have said that. It would have been fine, but it was this person. And there they go again with that. Your whole attitude changed, didn't it? Why is that? Because you have developed a callousness to that person, to that situation, to that event. And as soon as that begins to come in, it changes your attitude and no longer is doctrine on the same level of people. Suddenly, doctrine has risen. I have the right to quiet. I have the right to believe this way or to think this or whatever. Then the people began to be moved down and doctrine got to be moved up. And what happened? You were doing fine up until that happened. How many of y'all have somebody who can set you off? I haven't hit every situation, but you've got some situations in your life and somebody can just walk on in and just get you going. It's because there's some hardness of heart in you. Have it when someone you know or don't know addresses a topic. Do you have any topics that are taboo? Political ones? Religious ones? As soon as somebody brings up that topic, as soon as somebody brings up that situation... You change. You don't want to hear it or else you have a whole lot to say. But something changes in you. How about when you think about a past event? How many of you ever have a, how many of you have a past event that you don't like? <laughs> Just about all of us, right? We all got past events we don't like. And you know, throughout the, throughout the uh, week, throughout the month, sometimes all of a sudden, not doing anything, just mind your own business, a thought comes up about that event. What happens to you? You're going along, having a good time. Oh boy, glory to God, it's a good day. It's a good day. Then that thought comes up. You think about that person. You think about that situation. And what happens to your face? Oh, I can't believe they did that to me before. That was so wrong of them. Oh, I get so mad every time I think about that. Have you ever said that? I get so mad every time I think about that. The devil knows that. And as soon as you, you went from being glory to God, oh, it's a good day to... <laughs> you could be sitting in church, listening, having a good time, worshiping God, then all of a sudden that thought comes in and... <laughs> oh, I can't believe they did that to me. And what happened to your reception? Gone. It's gone. It's just like, you know, you're watching the big game and the cable went out. It's like, where did it go? It was just here. It's gone. Right, oh, you're into that game. You were into that game. Oh, it was a good game. And then it's... Whew, watching a movie. Oh, you're getting... You've never seen this movie before. This, is, this has been a great movie. It has grabbed your attention. You are getting to the end. You're finding out who the bad guy was. And bloop. My wife and I, we had that happen. We were on an airplane. We were watching this movie. It was a fun movie. I mean, most of the time they put, have those airplane movies and yeah, so, but it was a good movie. And we were coming to the, you know, the, the romance was building. You know, it's always, it's one of those ones where the, the guy and the girl, they don't want to be together, but you know, inevitably they're going to be together. And so, you know, they're, they're resisting, resisting, resisting. And it finally got to the point where it looked like things were going to turn and, and they were going to go and they were going to live happily ever after. And then, bloop. Please fasten your seatbelt. We're getting ready for approach and the movie was gone. They cut it out and there was no ending. We said, no, they 
can't do that. We got to find out what happened to this thing. <laughs> so we had to go home and find it and rent it and finish watching it. Ugh. But you know, past events, once that, it, it comes, it just changes. It changes us. We went from being lighthearted, happy, to all of a sudden now hard, resistant, angry even. Remember that comic who goes around, I forget his name. Is it? Oh, I, can't, I can see his face. You might be a redneck if. Jeff Foxworthy. <laughs> he goes around. You might be a redneck if, and he says all these situations and, and things like that that, that are going on. And, uh, you know, they're kind of funny and stuff like that. Well, you might have a hard heart if some of these things are going on. You might, have one, you might be one of a calloused, hard heart. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore, look at verse 3. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Not one engaged in warfare and no, I'm sorry, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if one anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So he gives two situations of this. But look at verse three again. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier. Of Jesus Christ. And he's saying this, basically, I put this in your outline. Endure hardness or hardship without becoming hard. Endure hardship without becoming hard. He says endure hardship like a good soldier. A good soldier is always, always, always open to the commands of the commanding officer. No matter what the hardship, a good soldier does what his commanding officer says. Right? That's why he's a good soldier. Because whatever orders are given, he does them. Even though hardship has come upon them. He says, like a good soldier, endure hardship, but keep on going. He says, beside that example, anyone who competes in athletics, unless they conform to the rules, they're not going to win the prize. If you, if you were in athletics, you have a couple of people in your life. A coach. A coach is the same thing as a commanding officer. Whatever the coach says, you do. Whatever the, in that particular event, whatever the rules are, you follow them. Or you're not going to get the prize. This is what you need to do. And as far as Christianity is concerned, listen to God. Be a good soldier. Hardships are going to come your way. Not because God wants them, but because there's some nasty people in this world. People whose only desire is to deceive you. To pull you down. People that Satan can use to neutralize you and cause you to be ineffective. Filled with anger and bitterness. At the drop of a hat, you're becoming effective and all he's got to do is remind you of some nasty situation that happened at work or in your life in the past and you're neutralized. He can stop you from getting any word that he's trying to put in you because as soon as you're sitting there listening to the word, as soon as you're in there reading the Bible, as soon as you're reading your, your devotional, whatever it is, he just reminds you of something nasty that's going on in your life and you get angry and upset and closed and you don't receive anything. You're not enduring hardness without becoming hard. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That time is coming. And I'll tell you what, we've been out sometimes. 
you know, we don't get outside of, of you folks too often, but every once in a while we've gotten outside into some people who were, were raised up in other, other places. Either they don't go to church at all, they just know about God, or they're in churches and they're not te- really teaching them the Word of God. And we hear the things that they say and do, and we, we, we think, Dear Lord, thank you, Jesus, for what a wonderful congregation. For a group of people who listen to the Word of God, who take it in, who let the Word of God affect them, and who are not deceived like so many are. Oh, I'll tell you what, it's like an oasis. We come on back, it's like, oh, glory to God. It's good. But the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. In other words, when sound doctrine comes in, the people say, nope, nope, not going to hear, th- nope, nope, don't want that one. Mm-mm. And they're resistant. They become hard to that. And it doesn't, it's not able to penetrate. It's not able to get through. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. In other words, what I want, what I feel, what I think is more important than anything else. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Well, there's not as much resistance in those areas. But God wants us to have the Word of God in. He wants us to have the Word of God in us. He wants us to be renewed on the Word of God. He wants us to, when we hear the Word, we oh, it's the Word of God. Oh, this is so good. Oh, yeah, give me more. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I'm going to change. I'm going to adjust my behavior. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to line up with that. That's, that's in the Word. That's in there. I can see that's in there. I haven't been doing it. I didn't know to do that. I know it now. I'm going to make sure I do that. And we begin to change our behavior. And every day, we're changing it more. And the devil drives, drives him nuts. Because he says every time they get word, they apply it. Every time they hear something, they put it to work. And then they go out and they get more. And instead of getting weaker, you're getting stronger. And the storms are coming, but they're not blowing down your house. The storm after storm after storm comes and the house still stays there. And the devil says, we got to get them off this rock. we got to find a way to get them hard to the things of the gospel. If we get them hard to the things of the gospel, we can erode that foundation and we can wipe this house right out. And that's what he wants to do. That's his desire. There's a whole lot of folks out there that want to be satisfied with you know, coming to church and hearing some feel-good word. And then you know, maybe you read a scripture or two. And then you go home and you felt good because you showed up at church and you can say, God, I, God, I was at church. But it didn't, didn't affect you. It didn't do anything. You know, we had a, it was a, this was some time ago, but we had, we had some people who said, you know what? You need to not, you told me this. You need to not teach the way you do. And if you don't, we're leaving. Well, they did leave. But they said, you don't, you shouldn't teach the way that you do. He said, it's, it's too deep. You, uh, some other people come and they say, you have too much responsibility on us to do something. One person came up to me and says, we need something more elementary. I've told pretty much all of them the same thing. There are a thousand churches around here. You can go and get something elementary. That's not what we're about. We've got a group of people here in the church that are ready. They're tired of little tiny word. They want something a little stronger. They want something that's it's heavier. Paul said, I desire to give you meat. <laughs> and he couldn't. You know what, folks? You're a church you can give some meat to. And you'll go out there and you'll chew on it and you'll chew on it and you'll chew on it and you'll come back and get some more. And you'll chew on that and you'll chew on that and you'll chew on that but you'll make it a, you'll have it affect your life. And it makes coming to church so much more fun. I know there's a whole, whole lot of churches out there that can get real big real fast by doing a feel-good word. But you know what? There's a thousand churches around here that can do that. And I know we're not the only one to teach. There's a whole lot of churches. I thank God there are because I have them on my uh, MP3 player so I can listen to them. Because I don't want just feel... It, we've, we pulled up some MP3 players or some uh, podcasts and they don't even open up the Bible. They didn't even open up the Bible. Dear Lord, what, what kind of good is that for you? We've got to know what the Word of God says. I've got to know how to live it. I've got to know how to apply it. Then I've got to go out and do it. Then I've got to come back and get some more. You know, how many of you ate yesterday? Anybody eat a good meal yesterday? New Year's Eve, a good meal yesterday? Anybody planning on eating today? You mean what you ate yesterday wasn't enough to hold you for a week? 
Why are you going to eat again today? Are you planning on eating tomorrow? How many times are you going to eat tomorrow? Two, three times? Really? Then how do you expect your spirit to get away, get along with so little? Not you folks, other people. No, your spirit needs more than your physical body does. Feed it. Give it the stuff that it needs because you are going to face some storms. Don't get mad at God if the storm takes you down. It isn't God's fault. You want to say, God, you shouldn't have let the storm come. God says, I told you the storm was coming and I told you how to get ready for it. You just didn't do it. He got angry at their hardness of heart. He got angry at them for their hardness of heart because they were that resistant to the things of God. Verse 4, And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, endure afflictions. You know how you endure them? You get the word. When the affliction comes, you do what the word says and you endure it. You don't just get through. Getting through is not victory. You have to endure. You have to get through in a certain way. Do what the Word of God says. Be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. I'm going to close with this. How many of you ever saw the movie The Secret Garden? There was a young boy. His name was Colin. And he, was a, he thought he was an invalid. Couldn't bear the strong light of the day and the clean open air. He believed that the things, that those things will affect his lungs and snatch his life. He believed he was destined to be everlastingly bedridden. Or in the few struggling moments he spends out of bed bound lifelong to a wheelchair. He believes that because he's been told that, he lives a long time this way, kept in that by a conspiracy of adults. But then... His orphan cousin, Mary, comes along and she sees through the conspiracy. And with like sheer defiance and hard malice, she tears the shutters and blinds off Colin's windows. Bright sunlight pours in through the scrim, through the scrim of dust and Colin shrieks. She throws open the windows and cool, fresh air swirls through the room. And Colin howls. She shoes Colin out of the bed and Colin yells. She forces him, sullen and whining, into the outdoors. She scolds and coaxes him from his wheelchair. He stands filled with self-lament. But he's standing. He takes one lurching step and then another. And soon Cullen walks. Then he runs. And then he skips. And then he dances. Mary seems so calloused at first. But she is the one who cares most dearly for him. She cares to woo Colin into the secret garden. She loves him enough to bring him to wholeness. You see, she knew all along that his bones were sturdy, his lungs deep, his muscles strong. She knew all along he was made for life to the full. God knows what you're made for. The devil wants to put people around you. They're going to keep you like a Colin, bound from the fresh air bound from walking in the Spirit, bound from all the things that God says you can do. And all kinds of folks are going to come around and try and tell you things to keep you in that condition. But God says, no, you can soar. You can soar. But you've got to be open. You've got to receive the truth and be resistant to what is false. We spent this whole time really just introducing to you to what we're going to get into in the next number of weeks, and I don't know how many. We're going to look at how how the truth sets us free. How bringing that in helps us out. But how to recognize what is true from what is false. How to be resistant to what we should not receive and open to what the Spirit has to say. Because when we do that, we will be transfigured from stubborn to steady from hard hearted to steadfast from up and down to a good steward of what God has given us and that's where God wants to take us how can we resist what we shouldn't receive and be open to what we should it's not as hard 
as we think. And the Word of God tells us how to do it. And so over the next number of weeks, we'll, we'll get into this and look at the things that will help us out with that. Would you all stand up with me? Here on the first Sunday of January, the first Sunday of 2012, the first day of 2012, we open the year remembering the sacrifice of Jesus through communion. As we've gone over this over and over, and the Word of God tells us to do it as often, or as often as we do it, to remember Him. Because it is imperative that we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. The entire thing that we have as a New Testament person, a New Testament saint, because of what Jesus did. What Jesus did is divided into two parts. His body and His blood. Forgetful hearers combine the two and see the two as doing the same thing. If the two did the same thing, Jesus would not have taught about the body and the blood. Because for the forgiveness of sins is embodied in what? The blood. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb that was promised, the blood of the Messiah. It is His blood that has washed away all of our sin. His body is not involved. But on His body was put the curse that was supposed to be on us. The curse for sickness and disease, pain, suffering. That was put on Him. And we don't have to bear it anymore. In the same way that we investigate what the Word of God has to say about how we are forgiven and what we are to do there, we investigate what the Word of God has to say about His body and His blood. Before we get involved in this, would you all bow your heads with me? We want to make sure that as we take part of communion that we're all ready. All we have to do to be ready is to have ourselves right. There's two things. First of all, we need to be born again. Secondly, if we have aught or anything against anyone, as the Word of God puts it, straighten it out right now. And as far as you are concerned, you can straighten out anything you have against any other person right now. You don't need them. <laughs> you can adjust the attitude on the inside of you perfectly fine right where you are right here and get yourself ready. If you're not born again, if you're not giving your heart to Jesus, we can take care of that problem too. It's real easy for that to, to be taken care of. If you're not born again yet, have not given your heart over to Jesus, raise your hand up. We want to pray for you that you can receive Jesus here right now and then partake of communion. If you have something against someone and only you know if that's it, the Word of God says that the Holy Spirit convicts us or our heart does not condemn us, we have peace with God. The Holy Spirit has been saying, you got this against this person. Straighten it out. Say, Father God, as far as I am concerned, on my end, this is taken care of. And as soon as I see that person, I'll take care of it from their end too. But take care of it on your end right now. And then you're ready to partake. Paul tells us in Corinthians, he said on the same night that Jesus was betrayed, the same night that he was given over to the authorities, before the supper, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this represents my body, which is broken for you. As often as you do this, remember that this is His body. This represents His body broken for us. On His body was put our sickness, our disease. The curse that should have come upon us was put on Him. And so before supper even got started, He broke the bread and He said, Take eat. This represents my body, which is broken for you. Let's eat together. Just emphasize the part that it was two parts. The Word of God tells us that after supper, the bread was before supper. The cup came after supper. There's a whole meal in between. He took the cup. He said, this represents the blood of the new covenant. In the old covenant, we had the blood of lambs and goats and pigeons and bulls and calves and things like that. And they covered up sin. But the blood of Jesus, the Messiah, is the blood that would wash them away. No more would we need the blood of bulls and goats. The blood of Jesus has washed it all away. Glory to God. As we drink together, let's remember, it's not what we do that gets us to heaven. It's not how much we repent. It's not how much we sacrifice. It's not how much we live right from this point on. 
is what Jesus did. It's his blood poured out for us. Let's receive his righteousness in place of ours and drink together. Glory to God. Glory to God. Father, we thank you for the goodness of the word of God. For the goodness of the promises of God. Do you promise, Father, to send your son? And you did. He came, lived this life perfectly, no sin, and went to the cross to bear our sin as our sacrifice. He was all man. He was all God. He represented both sides, and he brought reconciliation to man and to God. We are united together. God didn't fall, but we did. And he brought us back up to that level. We thank you for the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we wear. Not our own, always his. And as we go out this week, Father, I thank you for the help that you give us. To begin to recognize some places where we may have developed callousness. That our hearts have become hard, resistant to the truth instead of open. And open to deception instead of resistant. Thank you for the help that you give us in this. We're listening for your voice. We know there's more that you have to teach us. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.